Greetings, members of the board. It's been my great honor to be CEO and co-founder of Palantir Technologies, to lead this company into greatness for the last 16 years. Today, as we finally go public with the announcement of Palantir's IPO, marks a turning point for us all, a great leap into the future. And on this occasion, I want to read a letter to the shareholders, which states our values and solidifies our commitments to a new age of progress. I will begin. We declare that the splendor of the world has been enriched by a new beauty, the beauty of speed, a racing automobile with its bonnet adorned with great tubes like serpents with explosive breath, a roaring motor car which seems to run on machine gun fire is more beautiful than the victory of Samothrace. Beauty exists only in struggle. There is no masterpiece that has not had an aggressive character. Poetry must be a violent assault on the forces of the unknown to force them to bow before man. What is the use of looking <coughs> uh, behind? Quick question. Uh, uh, excuse quick question. me. Alex, uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, uh, tiny question. Um, did, you, did you write this? Did you write this yourself? Yes, of course I did. This is a statement of Palantir's values, the company I co-founded. Okay, okay, okay. Um, uh, I'm just wondering because it uh, sounds a little. Um, never mind. Keep I going. will Keep continue. Going. Going. Thank you very Sorry. much. What is the use of looking behind at the moment when we must open the mysterious shutters of the impossible? Time and space died yesterday. We are already living in the absolute. Since we have already created eternal, omnipresent speed, we want to glorify war. The only cure. Uh, yeah, uh, Alex, I'm sorry. sorry. I got I to gotta cut in. Uh, d really quick. Uh, are you... Uh, I don't know. This uh, sounds a little, a little fash, you know. Um, Excuse me. It sounds. It sounds. I don't, I'm just saying. I'm. You know. You said you wrote it. It sounds like something else I've heard. I wanted to ask again. You and know, what? What do you is think it, it is? From? What do you think it is? I. I don't. You know. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to point fingers, but this uh, sounds like the. Uh, the Futurist Manifesto, the uh, <coughs> the uh, Italian the Italian fascist uh, manifesto. Well, it is certainly uh, a manifesto of Palantir's future, if that's what you are implying. Okay. I'm just asking, you know, why do we got to talk about uh, war? Security, and, and, and security. Struggle? Remove this man from the boardroom. <laughs> Thank you. And now I will begin again. We want to glorify war, the only cure for the world, militarism, patriotism, the destructive gesture of the anarchist, the beautiful ideas which kill and contempt for women. We want to demolish museums and libraries, fight morality, feminism, and all opportunistic and utilitarian cowardice. We will sing of the great crowds agitated by work, pleasure, and revolt. The multicolored and polyphonic surf of revolutions in modern capitals. The nocturnal vibration of the arsenals and the workshops beneath their violent electric moons. 
the gluttonous railway stations devouring smoking serpents, factories suspended from the clouds by the thread of their smoke, bridges with the leap of gymnasts flung across the diabolic cutlery of sunny rivers, adventurous steamers sniffing the horizon, great breasted locomotives, Huffing on the rails like enormous still horses with long tubes for bridle and the gliding flight of aeroplanes whose propeller sounds like the flapping of a flag and the applause of enthusiastic crowds. It is in America that we are issuing this manifesto of ruinous and incendiary violence by which we today are founding futurism. friends and enemies. It's This Machine Kills, episode five. I'm joined, as always, by Ed and producer Jeremy. And today, we, we've got a, a real riot of an episode um, as, as we're going to dive into, I think, one of the most interesting and frightening documents produced um, from the technology sector in a long ass time. Uh, and that that's right. We're talking about the uh, Lord of the Rings uh, series, uh, <laughs> specifically the Palantirs. J.K. Um, Tolkien, man. Uh, also, Palant is he, is he, is <laughs> yeah, he canceled? Yeah. Is he not? I, um, I, <laughs> We're going to cancel Tolkien today. Uh, it's about time someone did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, as. Uh, uh, I mean, there, there's definitely, you know, a, a, a dark figure behind the, the curtains pulling the strings of, 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 this, of this world that we're about to enter. But, but enough, we'll, we'll get into him later. Um, first, yeah, so we're, we're digging mm. into the, the Palantir S1 filing. They're, they're finally going public. Palantir's going public, baby. Right. Mm -hmm. Thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm buying my stocks immediately. I'm investing. Um, this is an investment in the future. Right. Pa Folks, Palantir is a buy. You know, strong fundamentals, unless you look at the financials. Uh, strong uh, growth, um, unless you look at the way that their customer base is uh, constructed. Uh, strong branding, unless you look at the way that news coverage has slanted against them for their con contributions to the deportation machine. A buy. A must-buy in your portfolio, your 401k your your investment for whatever you need buy Palantir. This is this is TMK insane money. I'm, 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 I'm going I'm, I'm going crazy. I'm pressing. I'm, I'm yeah. getting the bull sound effects. I'm pressing the buy drop. Just oh, just yeah, buy, Jeremy. Buy, can we get buy. like a like a massive just like bell or alarm just coming in right here? Know that like we are serious. You need to buy Palantir. Or short it. Sell, sell, sell. You should probably short it. The, it all. the stock exchange is open. 
and 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 Palantir is just is flooding the market right now. You need to buy, buy, buy. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think most people are probably familiar with Palantir by this point, um, if only because they have have really stood out as a as a uniquely evil company um, in a in a landscape where it's it's actually really hard to stand out for being evil. Um, Palantir has really had to put in the grit and the hustle and the long hours uh, to really you know be uniquely evil and awful and and detrimental to human life and society. Mm -hmm. And um, as we will dive into later in the episode, you know, usually when people sell their souls um, and abandon any real sense of, of morality uh, or principles, they do it for money, right? But as you will see with Palantir, uh, they don't make any fucking money. So not sure why they, you know, decided really, really to. Really uh, a trend. <laughs> really a trend with these companies yeah. going public without mm -hmm. ever having made a fucking dollar in profit in their life oh my god you know i was reading um i was reading an article on protocol about uh about the uh, tech economy right now and they were they were it was like a jp morgan analyst uh and they said something like um what was it that the the fundamentals for the for the tech economy were strong. Yeah, I, I, here's the quote. It was that um, in addition to resilient earnings growth, tech has healthy balance sheets and strong cash flow generation, again, in contrast to the 2000 episode. I just want like people who are listening at home to think about all the biggest tech companies they know outside of like, you know, the FANG stocks, so Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, Netflix, um, Microsoft, um, Outside of those, like, are, are they profitable? Because they're not, you know, <laughs> or, or do they have strong growth? Do they have strong cash flow? Uh, the answer is no, but we're not in yeah. a bubble, you know. No, no, definitely not <laughs> in a bubble at all, which is about to pop and, and shower us all with corrosive acid. It's, it's an acid-filled bubble, folks. It's an acid-filled bubble. <laughs> I mean, I, I like that you bring up the FANG stocks, though, um, the FANG companies, because... Even if you look at something like Amazon, which congrats to friend of the show, Chairman Bezos, for right. reaching mm -hmm. that 200, mil, $200 billion mark. Amazing. Uh, just, just, just amazing fucking hustle and Capitalist excellence. And Richer now than Mansa mm. Musa, right? Richest human ever lived. Amazing. We love him. That's, we that's 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 what we call Bezos excellence, and we right. celebrate it here, folks. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm doing clap emojis. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm saying, get that bag, Bezos. And they're not <laughs> yellow. They're not white. They're orange because of the smile. Like we 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 don't see color here except for the Bezos colors. Whatever he tells us to see. <laughs> but yeah, so my man hit the two hundred billion dollar mark. Um, but again, Amazon is a is a really great example of a company with some really bizarre finances because I mean it also went ages without being profitable and right, right now its retail business like breaks even. Um, like I think you know you know it base they basically break even on retail, mm -hmm. where they really make all their money is as a is through AWS. That's the real right. profit engine, um, you know, and that that's just that's cloud servers, right? Like that that that's infrastructural. 
uh, and mm -hmm. and the the retail business is really need to be needs to be understood as a logistics business, um, which mm -hmm. is kind of laying the foundation for other stuff. But but yeah, I mean, so again, Amazon also has some really bizarre finances in the sense that like one part of it, um, the the kind of B to B part of its of it, of the corporation is. Um, it's Atlas, right? It's it's shouldering mm -hmm. the entire weight of that company, and so right, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Go That's ahead. That's why you can't you, you can't trust you know Bezos. He's a quant, you know. Like quants understand, um, like you said, you know, as even though Amazon is like for a long time it was cash negative, right? The reason it was cash negative was because it was spending profits on research and development, right? And that led it one be not taken as seriously by competitors like Walmart because they were like, oh, this company doesn't even earn a profit, right? And two, uh, by regulators also, because, you know, even a if a company is cash negative, right, and it's making all these acquisitions and it's making all these interroads into other markets and business lines, then you may not pay as much attention to it because it's cash negative in the first place. It's not some juggernaut. But Amazon was the juggernaut, you know, this whole time. It just managed to move the balance sheets in such a way. I think that, uh, you know, now that Bezos has hit 200 billion, you know, bless him, hope God protects his soul uh, from eternal damnation. But, you know, I, now that he's hit 200 billion, uh, the next, I feel like the next milestones will come a little bit quicker for him. You know, he was like at 161 billion last March um, before the divorce got finalized um, and then he made it all back. Uh, I feel like now that he's got like a core in the political economy, uh, the money is going to come back, and that's an important thing to think about. The the companies that establish themselves as services to business and consumer facing entities, as Palantir does, as Amazon does, um, are going to ride out any economic disaster thrown at us, whether it's from the depression that might result from the poor handling of coronavirus. Or um, you know, eviction locked uh, eviction crisis, or just like general stagnation of the economy. These companies are in good shape uh, because they plan to be in good shape. Yeah, and and their whole kind of financial mm -hmm. lifeline is based on these um, these institutions that are much more right. stalwart, mm -hmm. right? Uh, like like you know, they have mm -hmm. much more security in terms of finances, in terms of being mm -hmm. able to sign and and hold up to like contracts or services um, and it's not as fickle as a uh, consumer focused uh, companies but that also means that this kind of like you know business to business enterprise software um, stuff it, 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 it uh, you know it's often it's often overlooked it's the kind of it on one hand it's like you know the kind of like boring aspect of it um, I, I I think about like the the amazing episode and what's become kind of a theme for um, Trash Future, which I which I will call a a, a, a mm -hmm. sister podcast. <laughs> um, you know, they've been they've looked at like uh, Greensill and the kind of rise of reverse oh, yes. factoring, mm -hmm. this really bizarre and esoteric and complex um, business to business, you know, uh, software and and well, you know, software not really. I mean, more financial. Max machinations um but it's like you know it's this kind of stuff that exists in the background but then when you actually kind of stare into the abyss um it's it's extremely right. lovecraftian mm -hmm. in the horror 
um, of, of like what something like reverse factoring actually means and how it's like this ticking time bomb in the in in the uh, logistics sector and in infrastructure and in finance. Um, and I think something very similar. So you know, kind of pulling it back to Palantir, uh, and well, you know, Palantir is really well known right now for the work it does with police um, in terms of, and, and we talked about this, I think, on our first episode, right? Like Palantir as this kind of like um, data analytics platform doing what they call social network analysis, uh, really kind of like supercharging the ability of police to process and analyze and derive um, actionable insights from massive amounts of personal data, um, as well as being able to like do data fusion, so take data from a lot of different databases, whether it's like the DMV um, or like property records or or you know just just anything, right? Like feed any database into it, and the software platform is able to like fuse all of that together and draw um, you know interesting connections and and reveal new new correlations and new you know new insights and stuff um, so that's what they've really been doing with policing but that that's not all Palantir does that's not all that they sell their their that's not all they uh, all the people they work with and sell their platform to right, right Ed right Palantir is um, they do not discriminate on who they're gonna offer their services to they offer them to the police they offer them to um, government entities whether it's the NHS and trying to track coronavirus whether it's um, ostensibly, uh, they like to say they only work with Western liberal democracies or liberal democracies, right? But as we know, liberal democracies can have authoritarian elements inside of them, uh, whether it's police departments or whether it's, you know, Department of Homeland Security, uh, where they're working with ICE and the deportation uh, machine that, you know, terrorizes, mm -hmm. detains and deports and separates families. I mean... I think with Palantir, it's also important to note, you know, for years, right, for years, Palantir um, rejected the idea that they worked with um, ICE or um, on the question of separating families. And you make sense retrospect why they did that, because it's a horrible, um, it's a horrible, immoral practice, right? Yeah, it's, it's not, not good, good PR, PR, right? It's, it's not, not good, good PR, PR, especially if your company has never made a profit. It's not good PR. And yet, you know, they. I think like they, they, they. <laughs> we're 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 in right. it for the love of the game. We we're, we're in we're it hustlers. for the love of the game. We just we just absolutely, yeah. We're, we're hustling. We're taking away mm -hmm. them kids. We're tracking down them illegal families and immigrants. Like you know, this is. Mm, there's something. It, our calling goes beyond. I mean, if you really profit, think about it, uh, it Palantir is doing what QAnon hopes. Trump is doing right, you know, and I think that that makes them the real patriots. So that makes them the real uh, defenders of the American legacy. <laughs> I heard, uh, I heard that Alex Carp is personally looking into uh, the Wayfair yeah. scandal. <laughs> He's um, got like a know. giant uh, Ozymandias screen in his fucking uh, basement. Where he just tracks every single mention of Wayfair <laughs> and the names that appear on the furniture. <laughs> He's gonna get to the bottom of it, folks, <laughs> with his network analysis. <laughs> Yeah, no, but, um, oh my God. Uh, you know, Palantir only admitted this at da at Davos, you know, of course, where, like, you're surrounded only exclusively by elites or they're, like, uh, they're puppets and, um, and meat, meat puppets, basically. Um, and, um, 
you know, there he finally admitted, yeah, you know, like, look, our country, our, our country has undocumented migrants and we searched them for them. Um, and I think, you know, because of the work that people like, you know, Palantir, uh, sorry, that um, Mahente have been doing, you know, activist groups, uh, tech workers coalition that have been trying to intervene in workplaces like Palantir, but also in the public where this knowledge of uh, the work that they do for these companies may not, or agencies may not be well known, has been really important in getting them to try to like um, figure out ways to preempt it because they recognize in their S one, in their filing documents, it's a huge risk to their business model, right? If the public turns against them, but also like they're not going, they don't really give a fuck about the public's opinion. They give a fuck about how the public's opinion affects investors' perception of risk or ability to make a return on an investment in Palantir. And I think that's the important thing we have to differentiate, that when Pal Palantir as a company is totally fine with doing a moral thing, separating families, helping people, helping governments find out who to drone, you know, tracking people, violating civil liberties, you know, all that's nonsense. But really, it will only stop when it's concerned about profit, not when it's concerned about the morality or the philosophy of the thing, as its CEO will pretend to be. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we'll definitely dive deeper into this bizarre philosophy that really motivates Palantir later. Because it's uh, I would say it's not that they are, mm -hmm. you know, amoral. They mm -hmm. have a morality. They have a viewpoint. They have politics. They're right. abhorrent, um, but but the, but they are driven by a a deeply um, moral and political view of the world um, and what they think is righteous. And this is very much stated in um, the the Carp's um, letter to shareholders that was included in the S one, and we'll we'll we will dive into that. Um, later in the episode that that's going to be something we're going to really pick through but i think it's really important also to just you know note just to show the context of palantir and how it has kind of set itself set itself up and its platform up as this um like really generalizable solution to to to, to all the ills of the world um and so like I was poking into Palantir and seeing what their COVID response was for, for an essay I wrote a few months ago um, on surveillance pandemic. And I was really surprised. Um, you know, of course, obviously they had like a whole page on their website promoting it. And, you know, as right. everyone does, here's what we're doing for COVID-19. Um, but I was really surprised to see that in addition to the like the contact tracing, working with the CDC, with the NHS, you know, um, to do because I mean their social network analysis is 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 contract right. tracing, right? That's it's the exact same mm -hmm. technique. It's just one. It was originally designed to find right. terrorists, uh, you know, funded and, in part by Intel. That's uh, also an important thing too. Arm. They also found to find leaks both in corporations. And in governments, when whistleblowers speak out about something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so very much funded to kind of like 
you know, I mean, founded in 2004, so immediately, you know, in that lead up to, or, you know, in the in the real kind of kickoff of the global war on terror, so that's the context. But then, yeah, you know, they started pivoting towards like, you know, finding terrorists to finding leaks and then finding criminals. Um, so working with police departments, like I, I, like I knew all that. And then like, you know, COVID hit and obviously they're gonna just pivot toward contract tracing because it's the same mm -hmm. exact technique. But I was really surprised to see as well that they list on their website um, some other people they're working with and other things they're really focusing on is things like um, uh, assisting with supply chain management for a, quote, large Anglo-Australian mm -hmm. mining company, mm -hmm. right? Um, or mapping the location of employees for a, quote, major oil and mm -hmm. gas company, right? So obviously they're not going to name these partners, but they're working with mining, they're working with the oil and gas companies um, to do um, other kinds of, of COVID things, right? Like keep the supply chain going. I found that idea of they're mapping the location of employees mm -hmm. really interesting because, you know, that, that's, that's, you know, they're basically just keeping surveillance um, of their, of the employees for, you know, contract tracing reasons. So they're, they're really deep into, um, the logistics sector as well, and the kind of the the you know fossil fuel uh, industry, uh, mining, like they have no qualms working with with these with these sectors. I what what I found really interesting is that they they really explicitly say Anglo-Australian right. mm -hmm. mining company, right? So so I think that gets back as well to what you were talking about, Ed, where it's like they have no qualms about working with these like quote-unquote critical sectors as long as those critical sectors are contributing to the thriving of a certain type of right, civilization right. and mm -hmm. a certain type of country. Like you will, country. like Palantir... Palantir goes out of its way to poach or to convince people for contracts. It is almost certainly not going to Cuba or to Haiti or to Algeria or to Morocco or Turkey, you know, like for contracts. It's going to Western Europe uh, to the end, the United States, Atlantic countries, and also Australia, right? And New Zealand, probably, you know, to, for because these, these countries... On paper, right, they're liberal democracies, uh, but they also have like the sort of political institutions and structures that would allow Palantir to run amok, right? Palantir can privatize a lot of public bureaucracies, uh, in, specifically in public, uh, in liberal democracies. You know, it's not going to be able to, to achieve that same sort of outcome, for example, in China. You know, Palantir makes a lot of noise about how it doesn't support China because it's an authoritarian regime, but also it's not going to make money in China because uh, I feel that they, uh, their, their, their um, analysis, their diagnosis of China is that they're going to be locked out of interest groups and factions that would determine where resources are going to go for contractors if they're not going to do it inside the state itself. Another surprising link that we were discussing, um, and, and I only just found out mm. about, is Japan. Palantir has a huge footprint mm -hmm. in Japan. Yeah, we're going to have to get a... Um, um, we're gonna have to get uh, what, uh, Shoshana onto the show to talk about that. Yeah, Wydinsky. yeah, the good, the good Shoshana, Shoshana because she talks about, <laughs> um, or I mean, has talked with us about this uh, network of investors in um, 
Japan. And I think that this is also interesting in that within the United States, within Europe, certain operations, certain ventures have failed or gotten really bad public uh, publicity, right? But in Japan, that is not the case at all. Or in East Asia, that's not the case at all, right? And you have to ask, okay, if these are not like Anglo-Australian states, right, what is compelling Palantir to move there? And one might say it might be the liberal democracy, you know, okay, we could do that because that's what they say. But in reality, it's like, you know, access to easy capital. It's also the willing, it's also like the need and the willingness to, to have a new uh, corporation or industry privatized, an industry privatized by a corporation or a bureaucracy privatized by a corporation, right? Um, that Palantir can provide, along with the usual lofty VC funded. Uh, PR speak about how we're going to revolutionize the way insurance and healthcare works for you so that we can make you a safer, healthier person. Yeah, I just had a really uh, horrifying vision in my mind of, of Palantir and SoftBank doing the student dance. <laughs> and and just like, like joining forces to be uh, like truly like the celestial yeah, empire I, you know, uh, you know just... <laughs> I think if um you know Masayoshi son's a dangerous capitalist but if he becomes prime minister of Japan now that Shinzo Abe is too sick to continue uh it's over folks you know the banks <laughs> why would you even say that, Ed? Why would why would you even put that thought into the universe? It's <laughs> it's fuck? out here now. I mean, he'll probably never run. I don't think he likes that sort of um power. No, it reminds me of um, of what like Mark Zuckerberg or someone said about Mark Zuckerberg, like you know when he was thinking when everyone thought like, oh, is he running for president? It's like no, he would never do it because he would see president right, as a step right. down. Yeah, and all, it, it and I feel is. like yeah. like Masayoshi son, like right, like it, right. it's a step down for them to be in that position of like prime minister because he doesn't have president. checks right you know like as 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 someone like him you have a hundred billion dollars of other people's money or some money of yours mixed in as collateral that you can right? <laughs> you know saudis you know investments that you bought in the middle of a recession that uh you know were crown jewels of england or america or other uh, states uh stuff that like is not your own money Right, and you can bet on it. You can waste it all as much as you want, and you really don't have too many obligations. If you're president, oh fuck, man, you got to deal with like legislative bodies. You got to deal with uh, fucking uh, lobbyist groups. You got to deal with public interest groups. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, it's all sorts of insight, all sorts of oversight, all sorts of um, of interventions. You don't have that as a venture capitalist, which is why Palantir should, you know, yeah. Maybe maybe Alex Harp should run for president, you know, or governor. He he. They moved to Denver, right? So now they can be. I I was disappointed. I thought he's going to run for. Uh, I thought he's going to move to Utah. You know, give the Mormon Church a run for its money. But <laughs> oh my god, dude! There's some natural. I feel like there's some natural yeah. synergies there between. Uh, like I mean, who who's not to say that Palantir doesn't already have a contract with? The, oh, they could. The I know for a fact they to, have it with Scientology. To, to, like they know. have to. I mean, like I don't know. I don't know for a literal fact, but alleg uh, But I would. I would bet money that they likely have a contract with Scientology. You know. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Pick, yeah. picking, up yeah. picking up what you're saying. I mean, so that's the thing too about Palantir is they are notoriously 
mm-hmm. um, very tight-lipped about who they work with. Um, I, I, I think in part because they come from this kind of like um, security, you know, security intelligence complex uh, kind of mindset where it's all about like classification and keep everything secret and, you know, you, you, you don't want your enemies to know any anything more. Um, but I also think part of it is also the fact that like, it's it's kind of a, a, a really tricky PR line to walk to be like our institution has contracts mm-hmm. with Palantir, unless you're fucking yeah. like <laughs> yes, yeah, you don't give um, a fuck like the NYPD or something where it's just like mask off like. Um, but if you're if you're another kind of company, you know, you you maybe don't necessarily want your right. your shareholders to know that you have a massive contract for data analysis and like software platforms and, I think, and stuff like that for I think it's also Palantir. important you know for listeners to to you know Palantir to us and people who are listening may seem like such an obviously immoral thing and it is right but I think for government agencies in the middle of like an austerity regime or you know an era of austerity um, where they're competing for funding for various for not only public services, uh, but also pet projects or uh, lobbyist uh, pursued projects where the funding gets locked up as a condition of support, right? Palantir comes in as a sort of magic bullet, right? Where they offer, even though it's an expensive service, they offer at a discount uh, a service uh, to optimize the provision of social services, right? Because Palantir offers through its social network analysis a way to plug up corruption, a way to spot redundancies, a way to anticipate crime, uh, and or c- can be plugged into methodologies or technologies that anticipate crime ostensibly, like PredPol, right? Um, fusion centers that allow massive amounts of disparate data to be compiled into a one consol- consolidated image, right? This is stuff that comes at a discount for public, uh, for municipalities, for cities, for um, states in a period where public funding has retreated so for them it seems like a bargain deal but as we know as we've talked about it as we'll go into you know palantir has and takes great effort to ensure that the way that its projects end up they're pursuing a certain political philosophy which is that you have borders Mm -hmm. that are enforced And why are they enforced? Is it because borders are inherently good or because borders inherently bring order? No, it's because borders are inherently profitable, right? If you can create a border, then you can profit off of the provision of tech to maintain that border, right? Or to construct it or to reinforce it. Yeah, I mean, I do I do think that this is a, a case where there definitely is, like, a big profit aspect here. I mean, it also plays into that culture of, like, private defense contractors and, and you know, um, these, you know, these big bloated institutions like the Pentagon, like, you know, police departments as well, right? If we want to talk about austerity, um, you know, as, as cities have been like just completely hollowed out in government and local government and social services and, uh, you know, all of this has just been like hollowed out. The only people whose budget continues to expand mm-hmm. every year and is like really safe and consistent and assured is mm-hmm. police departments. And we know this 
from you know as well like the wave of um you know it, like in the very early days of of the george floyd uh protest where people were really starting to pick through the budgets of cities um in terms of like defunding the police and 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 you know the shock of seeing that like you know, a city's a city's budget is like 75 percent right, right, the police right. you know um and 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 that but that's just the way that that the, this kind of austerity urban political economy has developed um and there's a reason why like you know in my in my book uh, and work i i you know when i talk about like smart urbanism i now talk about it in terms of smart policing um, what i call the urban war machine because it's like that's where the money is right and so so there definitely is that aspect of um for palantir policing uh, border control, immigration, you know, working with ICE, DHS, all of that. Like this is, this is definitely, you know, they're looking for a market for their, for their product. Um, and, 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 and part of that as well is that I, you know, and we've also, uh, heard as well, I, uh, from Shoshana that, um, has told us that like, you know, Palantir's tried to work with mm -hmm. advertising and media companies and it didn't really go anywhere, in part because Palantir's tech, uh, technology is right. so expensive and so powerful right. that it's just like, you know, advertising firms and media firms are like, this is not uh, this is not for us. Like, we can't afford this. And, and honestly, this is like, you know, this is like a nuke mm -hmm. <laughs> when, when, when what we need is like a Tomahawk right. missile, you know, like this is far too powerful of a platform for, for what we're doing. And so they've had to find, um, more kind of like state, uh, apparatus and also kind of like quasi state, which is why they work with like, uh, you know, the, the mining and oil industry and, you know, gas and, and all of that, these like kind of industries that are basically operate like quasi sovereign, quasi state uh, 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 corporations. So there's that money aspect that's really important, but I did want to also emphasize that there really is a like uh, a, a philosophical drive to this as well like they're not working with ice and the police and stuff purely because that's where the they're like that's where their most lucrative market is they're working with those people because it's contributing to creating a type of society um that that carp and the other co-founder peter till um have really an active commitment towards materializing mm -hmm. and making into reality and it's really this focus on law and order the nation western civilization right like these are things that they find uh really kind of val valuable inherently in and of themselves um, and i think i think that also you know we should look at now the S1, you know, sort of as an orienting yeah. uh, program. Absolutely. Because the S1, I think, you know, companies are, kind, are required to submit to the SEC a sort of document that kind of elaborates to investors and to the public reasonable risk factors, information that they would need to invest. But the company is given wide berth to divulge what they may or may not. We've talked about how Uber has straight up used the S1s uh, to fabricate information so that investors will get involved. But, you know, this is not like an ex a practice exclusive to Uber. I think with Palantir, though, the most important thing, you know, I mean, there are some 
things to we I think the financials are interesting to talk about, but only short term because we are in a tech bubble, so ultimately financials do not matter. You know, a lot of companies are not profitable, and yet they have multi-billion-dollar valuations, have integral contracts to multiple city or state or federal governments. So uh, finances are not like the the place to draw a lot of the analysis from. But with Palantir, it's interesting because Palantir, you know, founded in two thousand three. So what is that? Uh, Seventeen years now, has never once made a profit, right? Um, and you know, the losses that it's incurred now, I think the last loss was, uh, you know, $579.6 million. And, you know, this came with a concession from Palantir that, okay, look, we may not be profitable, quote, we may not become profitable in the future, right? And as a result, it's a little confusing why they ended up doing a direct listing, right? Because of the, the the whole purpose of going public, if you're doing a usual underwriting, is you pay a fee to a, a bank, a large investment bank, and that fee allows you, one, to have your shares offered to the public at a certain price, but also to have like a... Four twenty yeah. <laughs> Tesla, <Right? Musk. laughs> We're going private at that. But also it allows you to have a sort of uh, fallback option, a green shoe option, where the banks will buy up your shares at a certain price to prevent you from taking too heavy of a loss, right? Um, you don't have this in a direct listing where you list it yourself. The only thing that happens when you have a direct listing is that you allow investors who are previously tied into your company and its shares to exit. And then when they exit, those shares that they're trying to sell will be available to the public, right? So it's a little interesting that a company has never made a profit is offering uh, to go public without the chance to raise more capital. You know, when you look at Palantir's finances, right, the vast majority of its finances go to research and development, but also to advertising or to marketing and sales, right? 60%, about 61% of its of its revenue, you know, was spent on the uh, sales and marketing last year. Uh, that, which is just yeah. insane, right? That's such a, the majority of their of uh, of, of their spending is on marketing and right. sales. When they like for this really powerful technology, which requires a lot of like expertise, like a lot of um, you know police departments and stuff, when they use Palantir, need to have like in house. Uh, Palantir engineers and data analysts there to help mm -hmm. run the platform, um, to to keep everything operating, to to contribute to institutional goals and you know all the, like you know that's all really really expensive uh, capital and infrastructure mm -hmm. that's required um, for but uh, which is wild that yet sixty percent of their spending is towards marketing and sales. Right. And it's and it's and it's to cultivating a consumer base, a customer base that will return to them each time. As Palantir admits in its own, you know, sort of risk factors analysis, they rely heavily on existing customers. I think the quote goes like historically existing customers have expanded their relationships with us, which has resulted in a limited number of customers accounting for a substantial proportion of our revenue. If existing customers do not make subsequent purchases from us or renew their contracts with us, or if our relationships with 
our largest customers are impaired or terminated, our revenue could decline and or results of operations would be adversely impacted. And, you know, about half of all of Palantir's contracts, right, come specifically from government contracts in the United States, in Europe, in East Asia, but about half of them, right? And, as Palantir has noted itself, its future total addressable market, which is a term that these companies use to say, look, like this is the amount of the market where if we became if we became a monopoly, we would be able to take it, right? If we were able to ignore the loss of the <laughs> land, we'd be able to take all of this, uh, which is why you should invest with us. Um, it's, six, it's, you know, the estimate is about $63 billion for government services, $56 billion for private sector. So obviously, you know, both are important, but the government sector is the largest share. And the government sector is not solely the United States, right? It's also the rest of the world. They need to be able to consistently have business from these companies come in or else they'll be at, they're already at a loss. They'll be dead, you know? They need these reliable contracts to come in consistently. That's one reason why they spend so much on sales and marketing. But at the end of the day, you also have to step back and ask yourself, why is this company, uh, you know, doing that? Um, or going public at a time when it's spending the majority of its money on chasing customers to make sure they stay. Well, you know, again, I think that fits in with its larger political philosophy, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and I guess you know maybe you know risk factors are important to kind of consider here. Um, you know, past the f yeah, let's go through some of these risk factors because I think it really tells us a lot about. Um, how Palantir is kind of situating itself within a, a larger kind of social context. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and also how it's, 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 it's deeply aware of its reputation. Um, uh, I think risk factors are, in my personal opinion, some of the best parts of S1s. You know, most S1s are boring as hell. A lot of obfuscation and a lot of nonsense. But the risk factors are where they're kind of legally required to be like, hey, we might get fucked on this uh, asserted item. Uh, you need to be you need to be aware of it. So, you know, one of the risk factors, Balantir, the first one or the first one we'll talk about is, quote, our reputation in business may be harmed by news coverage, by news or social media coverage of Palantir, including but not limited to coverage that presents or relies on inaccurate, misleading, incomplete, or otherwise damaging information. I think this is important. AKA the, the, the lion fake news Yeah, media. right, right, fake news. You know, and I think this is important because Palantir has had a history of um, straight up not cooperating with the press. You know, I think uh, I've reached out to Palantir maybe 10 times, 12 times for a story. The first time they replied, <laughs> The first time they replied was about three days ago, four days ago, when I wrote a story about the they S1. Said, they said, fuck no, you, buddy. No, they, they said, <laughs> they, they said in the email, um, hey, Edward, as you know, can't respond. <laughs> so, okay, why the... <laughs> <laughs> I like that. As you know, hey, hey, you, look, you know, you know that, you know how this goes, like... We can't respond. Yeah, like, come, come on, on dude. Why are you even at? It's like, no, I don't know because you've never answered any of my emails before. You never answered any of my <laughs> requests for comment. Um, 
But, uh, you know, Palantir in of itself is a secretive company. It has an adversarial relationship Damn, with the Damn, man. Why, just, why, are you, why are you simping right. on Palantir, <laughs> bro? Get, just get off my dick. Like, no, I can't respond. I'm not interested. And the reason they can't is because a lot of the times the stuff that they're involved in is stuff that you can't immediately defend. It's a little bit hard for you to figure out a PR pitch for why it's okay for us to do a drone strike, especially uh, with Palantir analysis, especially when most drone strikes tend to kill innocent civilians, you know, whether it's because they hit a wedding or a playground or a home, you know, like it's a little... It's, or sometimes they, they triple tap, they hit a wedding, right, yeah. like the funeral procession, and then hit the same place again. Yeah, look, a lot know? of people actually don't know this, but the reason why Saddam Hussein was in that cave was because it was, was because of the drones, you know, like we froze his assets... And then we did an indiscriminate drone strike on every inch of Iraq. And, uh, I mean, I, that, that explains for itself why there are a million deaths. A million civilian deaths is the cap um, in Iraq. And, you know, I think uh, if you ask yourself – if you really ask yourself about Palantir and you ask yourself why it is that, like, a company involved in drone strikes, which are illegal – you know, because there are assassinations in other countries, which is not illegal, which is not legal by international law. But whatever, um, if you ask yourself why a company like that is involved in uh, concerns about social media or press coverage, it's you know, obvious. You know, if you tell a person that a company is giving information to just assassinate people, I, you know, it's it's I find it a little hard to believe that anyone would support that you know like oh yeah fuck yeah palantir you know like shouts out to them giving the man what he needs to kill people <laughs> two three four thousand miles away from us that will never know never did anything will likely never do anything but we're on the list yeah and, and i mean and this is why this is the same company as well that has created um job titles like uh privacy and civil liberties engineer. oh yeah Right. Like they like they they've really gone out of their way um, to to talk about privacy and civil mm -hmm. liberties um, as something that they are, you know, they are engineering solutions for. They are accounting for um, because they know what they are trying to do is head off any criticism from the from the beginning you know they 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 don't want to be accused of ignoring these things or being ignorant of the issue of these issues they want to appear to be proactive um towards being concerned about privacy and civil liberties and that actually leads us to the next risk factor right which is that they say quote our policies regarding customer confidential information and support for which is like yeah right yeah it's like soldiers it's soldiers and right. officers that's that's it that's really who they're, they're helping out here that's their customers uh, and you know support for business uh for individual privacy and civil liberties could cause us to experience adverse business or reputational consequences now you know okay you know you think about that you're an investor you're leafing through this bullshit Interesting, you know, but what they're really saying and what they're kind of tacitly admitting is, look, we've done some shit. 
which would make people, I think, reasonably believe that we don't give a fuck about civil liberties, you know. Uh, Palantir has helped out, as we'll talk about later, has helped the NSA data mine you, you know, so that it would be able to create a global surveillance state. Uh, Palantir has helped uh, surveillance authorities, authorities are entertaining surveillance, to track protesters, to track dissidents, to track whistleblowers, to track all sorts of people who are not in of themselves doing anything wrong, uh, but are doing something wrong to the status quo, and Palantir's software is being used to de- to defend that. It's being deployed to defend that. Yeah, man, damn, I, I, hate, it. I hate it when the core operation and function of my business can keeps causing me to experience adverse right. and <laughs> reputational consequences. You know, listen, <laughs> investor, um, I just want to let you know our business models do evil shit. And sometimes people don't like evil shit. You know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, stupid shit. Like, oh, do you have to do evil shit? Do you have to do it so much? Do you have to do it all the time? Do you have to do it in other countries too? And we, st- we just want to let you know that, you know, we're going to have to be dealing with that in the public and the private, you know. Uh, but it's okay. This is a good return on your investment. Will never be profitable, but it's a good. <laughs> it's a good return. I promise you. Mm-hmm. Um, another risk factor, um, and this is a good one, is that their business quote is subject to complex and evolving U.S. and non-U.S. laws and regulations regarding privacy, data protection, and security, technology and protection, oh. right? <laughs> and others. Things like the Geneva Convention, no, you, know, eh. you know, like those things are evolving. They're in the minds of lesser you know, men. The, <laughs> the, you know, the, the, your rulings by the UN Security <laughs> Council, like, you know, but those things are evolving. Right. <laughs> they're constantly changing. You know, we're surfing this. And wave. they're evolving with our help. You know, many of these laws, the regulations, uh, they're subject to change with our lobbying. Um, and uncertain interpretation, you know, this, this might result in claims. Uh, changes to our business practices, monetary penalties, increased costs of operations, otherwise harm our business. So, you know, it's tiny shit. All we just got to let you know is that, look, if the laws keep getting more fancy and more pro-consumer, more pro-citizen, that we're going to have to spend a lot more money doing that because our original business model was to exploit the loopholes that allowed us to not think about that shit in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful, you know, uh, and I think probably the last, um, risk factor is artificial intelligence, right? We all know that to a significant degree, artificial intelligence, algorithms, data sets, they're biased, right? They're not, they're not objective operators. They're operating off of the information we feed them and the information we feed them is the result of a racist, you know, sexist society that has deep, 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 deep deep-rooted biases, right? Uh, so as a result, Palantir wants to tell its investors, look, quote, issues in use of artificial intelligence, AI, um, including machine learning, in our platforms may result in reputational harm or liability. And I think the, the core sections of their subsequent, you know, sort of exegesis exegesis is the quote AI algorithms may be flawed data sets may be insufficient or of poor quality 
or contain biased information, inappropriate and controversial data practices by data scientists, engineers, and end users of our systems could impair the acceptance of AI solutions. Okay. The next quote uh, begins. But, huh? but, yeah, I was just going to say, there, like, all of these words are really carefully mm -hmm. chosen mm -hmm. by their lawyers as well, um, because it's things like inappropriate or controversial practices, uh, the acceptance of our AI solutions, right? Um, so it's about this, it's really interesting because there's like this, this push in Silicon Valley recently uh, to, towards acknowledging um, things like, uh, you know, algorithms may be flawed, um, data sets may be insufficient or, or biased or, you know, of poor quality. Um, it, but it, it's a really calculated appropriation mm -hmm. of um, this kind of like uh, liberal critique of technology, which really focuses on things like um, bias and fairness right. and transparency, right? Uh, it, it's it's the equivalent as well. Um, I mean, there's just like this really bizarre PR push in Silicon Valley around appropriating these kinds of liberal critiques um, where you've got like Google announcing that they are um, basically doing like ethics mm -hmm. as a service, right? Where like they are, go they are learning from their failures and their mistakes, such as working on the Project Maven, mm -hmm. you know, defense contract, or such as having their image recognition um, algorithm, you know, identify gorillas as black people, right? Like, you know, all things that they, Google and Sundar Pichai explicitly point to those examples um, in, in this like glowing wired profile that was released a couple days ago where Google is now going to be providing ethical guidance and services to other companies to help them navigate these really tricky waters um, of AI and of Which data. Which I have to say is really amazing yeah. because once upon a time, anybody remember when their slogan was don't be evil, right? And now it's like, look, 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 <laughs> look, 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 we'll help you not be evil. For a price, you have to pay us. You can't, you know, we can't. I mean, in a, in, a, in a changing and complex world, sometimes evil right? happens. Right? You know, evil you happens. Know? We're here to take the load off. We're here to make you remember that it's not about being evil, you know? It's about being good. Yeah, it really read to me um, as this kind of like Google saying, we will absolve you of your sins. Right. We're, yeah. running a, a we're running a confessional. Um, so, you know, you come to us, you, you, you confess your sins and your unethical practices. We tell you to do, you know, 10 Hail Marys uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, promise to be better right. and do better. I think that's, that's really important to think about the, uh, the outsourcing of guilt and shame with, in terms of these services, right? Because, you know, with companies like with Palantir, with Google, you know, they were doing these sorts of services quietly to people who had the courage or the, the boldness to ask for them um, pre-Snowden revelations. And after Snowden revelations, you know, after the NSA purports to fold down or fold up its uh, operations and its data centers and all that, what happens? Massive proliferation of clients, right? Why? Because now they need a company that is willing 
to abandon any pretense of morality to provide these services for them because they don't want to do it. I mean, imagine if your if your if your city had to defend why it needs to spy on everybody. Fuck that. Palantir needs to defend why it needs to spy on everyone. Palantir needs to defend why it has a fusion center that con that merges all the data, the vehicle, uh, the automatic vehicle right uh, license registration plates, the automatic you know licensing. Um, Registration combined then with information that it gleans from social media on individuals. I mean, all of this shit, Palantir has to defend now. Now, you know, the city doesn't really have to defend. It doesn't have to, or nor does the federal government. And I think that's been a huge element that's been underlooked, you know, in terms of, look, this podcast is focused on the political economy. And the political economy of it, of course, makes sense for why Palantir and other private vendors are going to, you know, seize up these services. But why are these vendors able to seize the services? They're also partly able to do it because they're they're preying on the shame and the guilt that resulted after the Snowden revelations where every company was trying to pretend like, well, no, like the federal government forced us to do it when it was like, nah, like you asked the federal government to pay you five, fifty, a hundred million dollars a year so that you would do this. So that would be okay. You didn't give a fuck, you know, like that. that that's yeah. that's really what's going on. It's just, um, it's the profit I, I, motive. I know it reminds me of like like in 2013 when um, like the the government and and Silicon Valley were like falling over mm. themselves to throw each other oh, yeah. uh, yeah, under the bus, good. you know, to to be you know to to be like oh no like we we were forced to do these uh, you know these backdoors into the technology and we were forced to share. This do you remember data when Apple? And, you know they made us. You remember do when it. Apple? I think Apple had like the least amount of backdoors or just like concessions, and they were trying to be like, look, we're the we're the privacy giant, you know, like we care. Yeah, ain't no one getting into this walled garden. <laughs> you know? All these companies, they're weak as shit. But us, we care about you. We care about your privacy. We care about civil liberty, and so you should buy more of us. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's really wild, and this leads to um, I'll read this last quote from the Palantir risk factors, which also really, I think, just kind of sums up and nails home like how they what they see as the risk to their business. Mm -hmm. Again, it's not it's not anything about how like this is absolutely supercharging some 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 crazy surveillance and control apparatus. No, it's all about um, the 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 potential harms. So they say Quote, if we enable or offer AI solutions that are controversial because of their purported or real impact on human rights, privacy, employment, or other social issues, we may experience brand or reputational harm. Those are the harms, brand and reputational harms. It's not the harms that their technology is like directly mm -hmm. Uh, designed to cause like I like how they threw in that like human rights privacy employment being you know being like uh, who knows how companies are going to use our our really really powerful data analytics platform uh, to monitor employees for example maybe you know keeping track of their movements and their associations and all of that so you know uh, after all a job is not a privilege it's a it, you know it's a right it's a right, right to work that we give you. Mm -hmm. You know, we, mm -hmm. we we grant you that right to work, mm -hmm. and so it's us. That that I think that opens mm -hmm. up. Uh, that just like 
shows us a little bit into the future of how they think their technology might be used and who might be using their technology, right? It, it reminds me as well, you know, when I was like looking into um, uh, like COVID-19 technology, technological solutions and, you know, you had companies that were uh, claiming to be able to use like uh, uh, AI um, to enforce like social distancing, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, like oh, uh, your your you know your employees at this you know at a department store or a grocery store are not you know doing proper social distancing, and we know that because the AI picked it up on the CCTV. No, actually, because we have we had Jeff um, Bezos in the store, and he was just like watching from a keyhole, <laughs> you know, like making sure that you guys were socially distanced. Yeah, and, and there was another, exactly, and there was another company uh, that announced, oh, I'm trying to remember um, offhand, but they were saying, oh, here we go. Um, it's a surveillance Amazing. firm, Athena Security, Ooh. which was, which I think is also Peter Till. Really? Oh, God, fuck me. <laughs> yeah. So I think it also has a relationship to Peter Till. Um, and they said... Um, quote, we actually detect the person on the AI side, then we detect the face, and we look for the eyes. We take the temperature oh, of the eyes, because oh, that's, that's the closest shit? point. Oh, my that's God. the closest point to the core of the person's body temperature. So this company, Athena Security, uh, yeah, said that it was, it was detect, it was taking fever detection oh, and temperature uh, rec like recordings through people's eyes. Which uh, I mean, uh, also let's get let's get this off like like out of out, out of here right out, right now. That that's a fucking yeah. That's lie. bullshit. Look, like, that technology. You know, it's bullshit. In, the in literature, it cannot and will not. In do literature, that. there's a lot. I know there's a like a whole genre of describing people's souls and their emotional states through their eyes. I do not get that shit at all. When I look at people and I look at their eyes, I do not see any sort of fucking hint about their emotional state, about their 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 intentions, the way that novels or you know the, the the fictional novels about inner lives of individuals suggest that you would, right? And I feel like really like that the person behind this project is someone who takes that idea very seriously, that windows of the souls into your eye. When it's like, dude, if I look if I look at a thousand pictures of an eye, I cannot I, I, w I can't even give you what their emotions are in on one picture, let alone a thousand. And yet there are people who are building a fucking yeah. company based off of it. And 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 this is a this is a, a this is a COVID mm -hmm. pivot for this company as well, which I just looked up is is backed by. Of Peter course, Till, amazing. So, yeah, you know, the the. The the man behind the behind throne, the throne behind the man <laughs> behind the throne. <laughs> That's Peter Till. Um, but the, but this is a pivot for them because Athena Security, again, going off of his weird obsession with like fantasy and mythology. Right. Um, yeah, but but they originally uh, started as a gun and knife detection AI. So the idea oh, is that they would be able to detect um, people that had like uh, you know hidden weapons, concealed weapons um, through their clothes, and and also, and I don't know if it's this company or another company, um, uh, uh, was purporting to be able to detect 
like the moment of in like like the moment that that violence was going to occur so like you'd be you would use this at like a a bar or something and the ai would pick up um this like split second event um where a punch was being thrown but like before it landed like i don't know (laughs) oh that's ridiculous it's all it's all completely a lie one of my best friends drunk as hell is a better judge of whether or not people are going to fight than like some dumbass ai algorithm that's in that's centered in some and that's now going to be centered in some denver or maybe stone palo alto database what the fuck you know do, I, I can't, I can't. <laughs> producer jeremy just producer jeremy just put in the in the chat minority report <laughs> you know like you're it was like yeah that's what minority all of this shit is is for. potemkin <laughs> fucking ai i mean like with like no there's no there's in all honesty there's no such thing as artificial intelligence right it is a phrase that we've all been conditioned to use for a wide variety of things so that when a specific thing emerges we can then use that as like the core example and everything else is a proof of concept right because but in reality there's no there's no there's no like really concrete artificial replication of human intelligence let alone animal intelligence we just have a bunch of fucking programs that will do what you do what they need to do when you provide the right stimulus for them right that's it and mm. and the idea that we need i don't know i just get i get really frustrated with the idea that we need to automate and um and see more of our lives over to ai when one we don't even have a, a, honestly a good understanding of why humans do what they do but two you know no. let alone we don't even understand how the fuck automated systems affect the way that humans interact and do what they would normally do without an automated agent but absolutely absolutely and and so i mean this but what all of this shows is that i mean there there is this you know just this this booming market towards looking to these things for um you know in in an increasingly insecure and uncertain world these systems are here to provide security and certainty, right? They're all a they're all a safety blanket for us, right? Whether it's um, you know Palantir's uh, you know da- data analytics platform or it's Athena Securities um, fever detection AI um, or gun detection or right. knife detection, right? Like all of this is about creating um, the whether materially or ideologically creating this kind of like uh you know this this web this network that can be draped over the entire world to securitize mm-hmm. everything to to make everything certain to give us that safety um and and that really is a driving factor of palantir and i think you know we can spend the last part of uh the the episode let's shift gears and really dive into um i think you know the the most interesting artifact of the s1 filing and as i said at the beginning of the episode perhaps one of the most interesting artifacts um created by the technology sector in a long time is uh alex carp's 
um, letter from the chief executive officer, which is his kind of like letter to the shareholders stating their philosophy and their value, the values of Palantir Technologies. And, you know, there's a reason why in the cold open we, you know, kind of did did did, did the bit with the, the manifesto of futurism because I, I think as we read um, through this letter, it's important to keep in mind that connection um, to the futurist movement, right? This movement of futurism, um, which was, you know, truly a, a, a proto-fascist movement of, of, of kind of art and aesthetics and philosophy and politics, um, really based on uh, this, this glorification of war, um, understanding war as an expression of man's unbridled potential, um, and, and its hygienic, quote-unquote, application that uh, uh, eliminated the weak and the undesirable, right? War is hygiene. Um, and and this is, these ideas are really coming out of uh, this, the, the Futurist Manifesto by uh, uh, Filippo uh, Marinetti, published in, in 1909. So this is really some proto-fascist proto um, stuff, which, was, which really explicitly informed uh, the, the, the rise of fascism. And in fact, um, Marinetti was very active in Italian fascist politics until he broke with the party and with the movement um, in protest of their adoption of the Roman grandeur mm -hmm. style. Um, which was starting to dominate that kind of modern fascist aesthetics, you know, that hearkening back to the, the new Roman Empire. Um, it, and, and Marinetti didn't like this uh, because it was too stuck in the past. It, it was this glorification of a past, whereas he thought futurism and thus fascism should be future forward. Uh, you know, in other words, the, 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 the actually existing fascism wasn't fascist enough <laughs> for Marinetti. Right, right, right. And I think, I think that's an important distinction, right? That um, there was this tweet by uh, Sita Noanevu that um, talked about how, you know, a lot of times when liberals and left commentators want to talk about evil, they say fascism because they don't want to use the word evil. They don't because fascism feels as some end point that can be arrived at. Whereas if you say something is evil, it's a wrong right now that you need to oppose mm -hmm. right now. Um, and their argument was that people should not use the word fascism as lot, which I, I, I think I agree with. And I also think, though, that in addition to the fact that people shouldn't use the word fascism as a lot, as, uh, as much, there should be a recognition that while we do not have some of the current um, violent tendencies of fascism in terms of co of creating like really public, a really integrated public, like spectacles of fascism, of violence, of dedication to violence, of, of concentration camps and so forth, that it's still there nonetheless, but in the background, right? Yeah, and, and you know, and, fascism as a philosophy is very, uh, it's notoriously hard to kind of put a pin on what it means exactly. And, you know, we, we, we're not right. going to get into that. I mean, but those debates, those kind right. of sectarian debates as were already happening, you know, as we see with like Marinetti's break with the Italian fascist party because it wasn't like true fascism or whatever. Um, right. And, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, we'll put a pin in that and I'll just point to 
the Antifada podcast had a really good episode recently um, about that question of what is fascism. And they spent the whole episode kind of analytically going through multiple potential definitions um, of it. But, 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 you know, instead I want to uh, treat um, fascism here uh, like pornography. I know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I you know I might not be able to give you a solid, uh, airtight definition of it, but when I see it, mm, I know, I know that's I know what mm-hmm. it is, and that's fash. That's fash. And um, the interesting thing uh, about Marinetti, and I think there's a really direct connection between Marinetti and Carp, um, is that uh, you know essentially what he wanted was less of the statue avies um, version of fascism um, and more of the starship troopers version right he wanted it to be this glorification of war and speed and progress um, in the future and this is really i think we see this uh we we see and should draw a direct cor- uh, connection and analogy between the manifesto of futurism and the the letter from carp um, which we'll get into now which is really somehow actually like more fascist than marinetti's manifesto yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know honestly because when i read Man- uh when i read marinetti's uh, manifesto the very first time uh not really sure i was not obviously when he when you read it, he's talking about in the beginning a time when he wrote a car and he just like got so fucking hard off of it that he made it into a like a, a metaphor. But like when you read it at the first time, the first time I read it, I was like, are they killing people? Like, if, I, like are they being fascist and they're writing about the ecstasy of it, or are they just like, is this like a dream, Damn. like a fantasy? Mar- Marin, you know, and it turns Marinetti would have fucking loved. Um, crash the the J the JG oh, Ballard where they're like at, <laughs> yeah. like literally fucking cars. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, <laughs> he would. Yeah, he would have loved that. He would have loved that shit. Um, but so all right, let's get into Carps. Let's end the episode reading through Carps' letter, um, which is a just like pure Verhoeven fever dream. So, mm-hmm. Carp begins. Our welfare and security depend on effective software. In times of stability, the right software helps our most critical institutions serve their markets and the public. In times of crisis, effective software can be essential to an organization's survival. Our software platforms are used by the United States and its allies around the world. There you go, right there. That tells you everything you need to know. The United States and its allies. USA. USA. (laughs) USA. Uh, America. Many of the world's most vital institutions, (laughs) from defense and intelligence agencies to companies in the healthcare, energy, and manufacturing sectors, rely on the software platforms that we have built. See who he's chooses as the avatars or paragons of vital institutions, defense and intelligence agencies. Um, The challenges that we face and the crisis that we have and will continue to confront expose the systemic weaknesses of the institutions on which we depend. Our industrial infrastructure and manufacturing supply chains were conceived of and constructed in a different century. 
Government agencies have faltered in fulfilling their mandates and serving the public. Some institutions will struggle to survive. Others will collapse. Jesus Christ, dude. Mm-hmm. Just Winner I, takes all. Winner takes all. The idea, I, you know, really drawing in that idea that, um, again, a theme that we'll see throughout all of this is that he in the letter he's saying things that's like on one hand it's, it, they're true like you you can't disagree mm-hmm. with some of his analysis but but where where this analysis takes him is a fucking like bizarro realm right it, it, it's right. like it's like you know two paths converging and he takes the fast path <laughs> you know why right. you know like if me and you were sitting here looking at a world where government agencies have faltered as he says in fulfilling their mandate serving the public right institutions struggle to survive some collapsing manufacturing supply chains struggling maybe the solution would be to uh, make them public in a way that uh, removes the competition aspect and decentralizes their management, mm-hmm. uh, that allows people in the communities to run them more, more not efficiently, but more responsive to the needs of the people in the communities. But no, 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 no. The need here is to just privatize them more deeply with a more digitally competent technology yeah and, and to and to build this kind of fortress mentality i mean i think the the language he uses there is struggle to survive while others will collapse that kind of um like fall of western civilization narrative is really necessary to create mm-hmm. the fertile ground uh for a company like palantir and for a philosophy that um like carp and, and peter till have to to thrive um, so he continues Our customers come to us because their technological infrastructure has failed them. The enterprise software industry's focus on custom software tools and applications is misplaced. These approaches often only work briefly, if at all. The problems and needs of an organization often change before the software can even be deployed. Our partners require something more. They need generalizable platforms for modeling the world and making decisions. And that is what we have built. That's a really interesting um, way of of making a solutionist argument, right? It's it, there, he's carving right. out he's carving out a market niche there, where he's basically saying like this this need towards like um, kind of personalized and ad hoc solutions. That's that's the wrong way to go about. The way to go about it is to have the one ring to rule them all, right? The, uh-huh. um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So he continues, um, our company is a creative enterprise filled with strong personalities who are immensely talented and care deeply about their work. The culture of our company is more than a mere byproduct of the people we choose to hire. Our culture and means of organizing ourselves are preconditions for the creation of effective software. We identify what needs to be done and organize ourselves around the outcomes that we hope to achieve. This requires that we stay flexible about who should be leading what and when. I mean, all of this is is just real padlum, right? This is like this mm-hmm. is like really basic like Silicon Valley tech sector like padlum around right. like flexibility and creativity and blah blah blah. Right. Um, 
you know, the uh, skip ahead a little bit. He says, entire companies can subsist for years on a business model that may have made sense at some point in the past. In the short term, there are often profits to be extracted from the enterprise and from customers. We have rejected this way of working. The alignment of interest between our employees and our company and between our company and our customers is one of the principal reasons we have come as far as we have. So where Palantir sees itself as existing is not in the public or private of the partnerships, but in that hyphen that connects public and private, mm -hmm. right? This is a, this is, they are seeing themselves, um, yeah, not, not as like trying to, as they put it, extract profits from their customers or, or, or swindle or, you know, uh, deceive their customers, um, nor are they trying to exploit their uh, their employees, right? No, they want mm -hmm. this to be a like symbiotic relationship, mm -hmm. um, not parasitic, symbiotic. Right? No, no, never. Capitalism will never ever be parasitic. We only add a value. But th this is where we start getting into the um, weird, uh, the weird right-wing critique of capitalism um, that uh, uh, Carp and Till kind of set out here where they are saying that these, you know, that these ways of doing capitalism of, you know, looking at extraction and exploitation and parasitism, that's backwards. Mm -hmm. This is an right. evolution of capitalism, uh, right. you know. Uh, <clears throat> fascism, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that is essentially that. So that is a that is a really common definition of fascism is it's capitalism in decay, right? Fascism is what emerges like a phoenix from the corpse of capitalism. Uh, right. Mussolini called it corporatism um, right. because he saw it as the 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 complete and final merger, that fusion dance between right. um, the corporate entity and the state entity. And, and this right. is exactly what Carp is laying out here in, this, in, in his letter. Right. I think yeah, yeah, that's really important. You know, like the idea that typically in capitalist dynamics, the corporate enterprises have to maintain a pretense of independence. But in reality, the most successful corporate enterprises are ones who have successfully lobbied and integrated themselves into the state bureaucracy to receive a never-ending deluge of subsidies, of uh, political capital, and in one way or another, anti-competitive, anti-market um anti-capitalist right in not in the leftist sense but in the narrow sense of like they're not doing what capitalism is supposed to do anti-capitalist um powers and privileges that undermine the function of the free market right yeah which, that's which what is, i mean that mm -hmm. gets to peter till's um core critique that he's very explicit about the the competition is bad right the mm -hmm. what's good is monopoly um right and 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 so uh, the letter continues, our work and the use of our software present difficult questions. The construction of software platforms that enable more effective surveillance by the state of its adversaries or that assist soldiers in executing attacks raises countless issues involving the points of tensions and trade-offs between our collective security and individual privacy. 
the power of machines, and the types of lives we both want to and should lead. The ethical challenges that arise are constant and unrelenting. What a, what a bizarre way to, to, I mean, on one hand, you've got the really basic um, and really discredited framing of this trade-off between collective security and individual privacy, right? Like, that's really basic stuff. Um, and, you know, you, you, po you, you present one against the other. And that, mm -hmm. that argument has been debunked again and again and again by scholars of privacy and of security right. and so on. Right. Um, but a, a really bizarre kind of uh, way to take that is towards framing ethical challenges as constant and unrelenting, right? It's just like this, this, this pressure that's pushing down upon you, right? Like, uh, you know, ethics as this boulder that you have to you have to bear the weight of um, as it, as it threatens to crush you. Right. I think, and I think that is really at the end of the day how a lot of capitalists, not the people who would happen to subscribe to the ideology, but the people who have capital, large amounts of capital, are operating with they're operating with the assumption that um the market is nice and all but it's honestly an obfuscation right because they know what's best right the market doesn't know what's best the government doesn't know what's best the consumers don't know what's best i mean i think it's best encapsulated by steve jobs steve jobs own encapsulation about this right where steve jobs said that the consumer doesn't know what they want until the company presents it to them Right, mm -hmm. that they didn't know they wanted the iPhone until they were given the iPhone because previously they thought they wanted a discreet uh, consumer product for phone calls, and they wanted a discreet consumer product for music and and the consumption of music, and that it was only once the two were merged that they realized they needed something for that. Right, and I think that's how a lot of capitalists conceive of themselves and their industries and their products and their services. That the consuming the the cons, uh, consumptive public doesn't realize they need it. So the question becomes: How do you make the public understand that they need it? Do you need? Do they understand they need it through massive amounts of lobbying and public relations? Do they understand that they need it through an extensive propaganda campaign? Do they understand that they need it through um, some capitalist reindoctrination camp? I mean, like, what is the me what is the poison? What is the method that is going to do it? I think with Palantir. Palantir does not need to spend as much money necessarily on rehabilitation the way that an Uber or an Amazon or a Facebook might need to do. But it is still pretty heavily invested in those narratives, which is the point at which its co-founder, the silent co-founder, as you put it, uh, comes in, Peter Thiel, right? If Alex Karp is the front face, is the, of the guy who's spouting the philosophy, you know... Uh, Peter Thiel's the guy who's like, maybe not as deeply as we might like, but he's thinking about it. You know, he's mm. he's he's going out of his way to to really examine um, whether or not capitalism, liberalism, freedom, democracy, all these things are compatible with the worldview that he believes is the most beneficial for individuals. Yeah. So the, the letter continues, we embrace the complexity that comes from working in areas where the stakes are mm -hmm. often very high and the choices may be imperfect. 
the more fundamental issue is where authority to resolve such questions, to decide how technology may be used and by whom should reside. Our society has effectively outsourced the building of software that makes our world possible to a small group of engineers in an isolated corner of the country. The question is whether we also want to outsource the adjudication of some of the most consequential moral and philosophical questions of our time. The engineering elite in Silicon Valley may know more than most about building software, but they do not know more about how society should be organized or what justice requires. Now, our, uh, all right, now we're, now, we're, now we're at that point where two, there's, there's two paths, you know, um, it, it, it converged, mm -hmm. you know, two paths diverging, uh, because honestly, you could have taken that last part that I just read and, and copy and pasted that into anything I've written, anything yeah. Ed has written, <laughs> and it would make sense. And it would be natural mm -hmm. and it would fit. Mm -hmm. And it would lead, and our conclusions from there would go to two diametrically opposed places. You know, mm -hmm. absolutely insane. So, so uh, this next section, this last section of, of the letter um, is where, you know, I, 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 I was, you know, I'm fully on board with thinking that um, either uh, Peter Till has uh, co co like shadow, um, like ghost written this, this letter um, because it so <laughs> thoroughly uh, expresses his contempt for Silicon right. Valley. And what we talked about uh, a, a few episodes ago with this um, uh, American Mind manifesto, this kind of like, uh, MAGA critique of technology, which is really based on this kind of like anti-Silicon Valley, um, you know, these the, these elites are, uh, you know, they they've led us down the wrong path. They are not committed to the right values. They do not hold the right morals and philosophy um, to actually lead us into progress as they purport to do. Um, and instead, we need something else. We need uh, we need to control technology, um, but 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 not in that kind of like social control of technology where it needs to be like you know democratic or lead to like socially beneficial uses or or, or socialism. You know, no, um, it's a control of technology in a very kind of like authoritarian and fascist way, right? Like we need technology. Um, we need to glorify technology and we need to direct the power of technology so that it leads us to um, the kind of endpoints and goals that, that, that we see as valuable. Right. You know, like the future has talked about how like, um, you know, the automobile train, you know, like these sorts of things because of their speed, because of their ability to just cut through the usual monotony of human experience, they were valuable. And I think in the early days of tech, but also, I mean, I think still people talk about tech as if like, oh, look, you know, it disrupts, it breaks things fast. It is, it is inherently progressive in a way that laws and bureaucracies and deliberative processes are not. And so your question is, are you on the side of tech, which is inherently fast moving and mobile and speed and has speed imbued in it? Or are you on the side of the past, right? 
which is, and all, you know, like, uh, there's this Wired piece that talks about how futurism, futurists of today, do not in any way, shape, or form identify themselves with futurists of the past, right? But they are doing the same, if not like a higher realized form of that work, where like the futurists of the past wanted the past to be abandoned and wanted the now mm -hmm. to be exemplified as a as a bridge to tomorrow. They wanted bridge. They wanted you know um, cemeteries and museums and and sculptures and arts and all of this stuff to be abandoned as static and destroyed it's, it's, even abolished. right you know and and today you hear people in in these fields asking very loudly why it is that we need to have any sort of familiarity with the past right from uh, ideal perspective and that the past is obviously the past so their ideals are wrong from the material perspective where they don't even understand what it is constructed the past so why should it even be relevant to the future or the present let alone and I think the Futurist Manifesto is important because, one, you know, it's easy to call tech fascist because of the outcomes. But in the core philosophical leanings, you know, um, we need to be concerned about the way in which it aligns very neatly with futurism and the way in which futurism very neatly lend itself to fascism and only receded not because fascism went too far because but because it went too back you know as you said because mm -hmm. it went too roman you know yeah. um these are real concerns i think get lost in the in the questioning about what tech is and its value and that like there are still like we have not really identified and exorcated the the fascist roots in our society and the fascist trends in our society and tech is coming in at a time when we when that ignorance is working to its benefit. Absolutely, and and I, I think, um, you know, <laughs> I think one thing that that Carp is getting at in this letter as well, and in, in this kind of, uh, you know, and he does it really strongly in the section that I'll I'll read shortly. Um, this kind of separation, severing of Palantir from Silicon Valley, uh, is is in a way I think him saying that they've lost their way, right? That they mm -hmm. that. Silicon Valley, these companies, the ethos there, it's too liberal, um, you know, in its culture. Uh, it capitulates too easily to public pressure, right? It allows itself to be um, detoured and distracted from the path of righteousness. Um, and, and that is why Palantir is separating itself um, very explicitly and very strongly from this, you know, in a way, this is a factional debate, right? This is a, this is a sectarian debate, and we can see Carp until uh, through Palantir, um, kind of uh, announcing the ex the creation of a new faction, right? A new futurism, the the Palantir's futurism, um, which mm -hmm. like Marinetti, separating from. The, the Italian fascist party, you know, uh, Carp and Till are doing so as a way to say this is, this is the true future, right? This is the true um, path. Everyone else has lost their way, but not us, right. not us. We right. remain committed. Um, and so he uh, continues, our company was founded in Silicon Valley, but we seem to share fewer and fewer of the technology sector's values and commitments. 
From the start, we have repeatedly turned down opportunities to sell, collect, and mine data. Other technology companies, including some of the largest in the world, have built their entire businesses on doing just that. Software projects with our nation's defense and intelligence agencies, whose missions are to keep us safe, have become controversial. While companies built on advertising dollars are commonplace, for many consumer internet companies, our thoughts and inclinations, behaviors, and browsing habits are the product for sale. The slogans and marketing of many of the Valley's largest technology firms attempt to obscure this simple fact. This is this is extremely interesting how he <laughs> yeah, is yeah. marking mm -hmm. his enemies, right? Um, which is weird too, because Till, again, I think still sits on the, the board of Facebook, right? But right. we can also mm -hmm. see this kind of nationalism in Zuckerberg as well. You know, I, I think you and I were talking before about how it's like, man, I, I, I wish I could be a fly on the wall of the like, you know, late night, uh, uh, Zoom sessions or whatever between like Zuckerberg and Till and Carp and you know Elon mm -hmm. Musk, um, just really getting into this techno nationalism, imperialism, right? So we can we can see this we can see a faction uh, a factional schism happening right now. Um, this this right. is this is like Martin Luther separating from the church. And these are the these <laughs> yeah. are the theses nailed on the church door. That's how we no, have honestly. to understand this letter. <laughs> That's how we have yeah. to understand this letter. Um, and and he, he is marking their enemies, not naming them, but all but naming them. We know exactly mm. who they're talking about. And it's really right. interesting that they are setting up. Um, advertising dollars and this kind of advertising business model as the the that's the true corruption and and they have a lot right. in common then in that regard with Shazana, Shoshana Zuboff um, and her critique well, yes, of surveillance yes. capitalism right so all of a sudden we can start mm -hmm. seeing um, unlikely bedfellows emerging in this mm -hmm. in this sectarian debate and especially national schism Especially when it's like, you know, Palantir is critiquing advertising dollars because they engender a certain business model that deprioritizes civil uh, liberties, right? But Palantir has its own business operations that relies on selling its technology to advertisers so that they can optimize the way in which they extract data from consumers, right? I mean, Palantir is also independent of that in the letter they exclaimed that they never mined or sold data but i mean they did they did that for the nsa right so i think on the, right, it's but, also but interesting it's, to think about a different economy that's the... right 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 because like the advertising economy is the problem that they have with they have right an mm -hmm. economy where individuals interests desires needs and concerns are transparent but exclusively to private corporations and entities that use those to then extract more profit from them, right? That's something that CARP and Thiel seem to have a problem with. But they do not have a problem with technologies that do that, right? They don't have a problem with technologies that empower corporations to gain insights into what an individual wants 
externally and interiorly, right? What they say they want and what they also don't say they want, but still influences what they want. What they have a problem with is the monetization of that, right? Or mm -hmm. profit models that achieve chief fortunes quicker than they were able to and, and they don't that, have a problem with that tech it's it's being marshaled towards these debased uh ends of of profit and you know selling stuff and commodification no 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 what what that needs to be directed towards is things like national security law and order mm -hmm. keeping our soldiers safe um so mm -hmm. I'll, I'll continue with the letter and and all of this will really be driven home so it says the world's largest consumer internet companies have never had greater access to the most intimate aspects of our lives and the advance of their technologies has outpaced the development of the forms of political control that are capable of governing their use. The bargain between the public and the technology sector has, for the most part, been consensual in that the value of the products and services available seemed to outweigh the invasion of privacy that enabled their rise. Americans will remain tolerant of the idiosyncrasies and excesses of the valley only to the extent that technology companies are building something substantial that serves the public interest. The corporate form itself, that is the privilege to engage in private enterprise, is a product of the state and would not exist without it. Our software is used to target terrorists and to keep soldiers safe. If we are going to ask someone to put themselves in harm's way, we believe that we have a duty to give them what they need to do their job. We have chosen sides, and we know that our partners value our commitment. We stand by them when it is convenient and when it is not. The ability of our most vital institutions to protect and provide for the public requires the right technology. And we believe that as a result, over the long term, the strength and survival of democratic forms of government do as well. Oh. How do you feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just just a real mask off moment. Uh, so, I, uh -huh. you know, relating it to these are the theses nailed to the church door. It's worth looking at. The, the letter itself, if only to see the form and structure um, of the letter, mm -hmm. because it's written like a manifesto. It's written in a really yeah. bizarre style or a very bizarre structure where there's, it's actually broken up into five sections, um, kind of using Roman numerals to separate them. And it's written in this kind of um, thesis kind of way where it, it's like really, uh, you know, like, like, really short paragraphs, you know, two, three sentences kind of broken up. So it's written in this kind of like driving staccato, like a series of theses, like a manifesto. Um, and I think that's how we have to understand uh, this. This is the manifesto of Palantir futurism. And it is one where they are, you know, being very explicit. They've chosen sides. They've made commitments, whether convenient or not, to... Uh, America and its allies to, uh, you know, national security, um, you know, to maintaining the strength and survival of 
democracy, but in this way that like we know the far right talks about democracy and liberty, right? In the way that like we're spreading democracy to Iraq, <laughs> you know, that right, kind of democracy. Right. That's the kind mm -hmm. of democracy that. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I think um, I think it's fair for us to think about this letter as either being pre ghostwritten by Peter Thiel or an active collaboration with him because him and Thiel are consciously thinking about Palantir and its product in philosophical terms and political philosophical terms. And, you know, one of the terms in which they think about it, obvious, um, uh, I guess a superficial encounter with it would, might be in their S1 where they talk about why they're not working with the Chinese Communist Party. Right, but this is also consistent with how Carp, over the uh, and Carp and Theo have talked about why people who work with the uh, you know China are traitors in their eyes to the United States. I think that um, you know Theo wrote a New York Times op-ed, um, you know, sometime in in August, weeks after he'd also given another speech on the subject, where he talked about why. People, specifically Google, who worked with China, were traitors, you know, just traitors to the United States and how he viewed the 1971 opening of China um, as a defining moment of weakness for the United States in which, because di diplomatic relations were normalized with the country, with China, um, the failed project of globalization entered, right, and globalization took precedence over technology took precedence over progress, took precedence over innovation. And instead of localizing successes and pursuing innovations as they saw, as they made sense in the locale, things were copied uh, overseas in you know, multiple regions to catch the world up. That's, I think, Thiel's basic conceptualization of globalization versus innovation, right? And, you know, CARP, I think, shares these ideals as well. I mean, CARP talks about or thinks about how this, the software that Palantir provides, it's necessary for, quote, the strength and survival of democratic forms of government, you know. Um, and that's his own words in the letter, in the S1, that he adds uh, there. He believes, right, and I think a really good analysis of his beliefs and Thiel's beliefs is more Weigel's um analysis of, uh, of, um, that Frank, of the encounter of the Frankfurt school, right? Where she, I think it's called, uh, Palantir goes to the Frankfurt school. Yeah. Yeah. Maura Weigel's, um, essay in, in, the, in Boundary, really great article, mm -hmm. um, where she actually read Carp's PhD thesis and did like a, a, this kind of intellectual history of, of, um, CARP. Right. And, you know, when we step back, it makes sense. CARP has this thesis, which has a really coarse set of ideological assumptions that make sense when we compare them to Thiel, right? The idea that humanity is inherently violent, that, so, that conflicts, social conflicts inevitably end that way, and that you need to have some sort of authority that mediates them, uh, paired with the fact that Palantir has always, for a long time, received CIA funding, right? As mm -hmm. the CIA, for those who didn't know, has its own VC fund, right? It's called InQtel. Cute little name. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll be diving <laughs> into that into a future yeah, episode. Yeah, sure. no, it deserves, it deserves its own episode. We're going to definitely dive into it. But 
you know, CIA, VC, best friends. Um, Palantir has always, you know, been able to get access to that sort of money, right? And Thiel's anti-globalism um, has not really been opposed in any real way. It's gotten acceptance and gotten funding, but it's also found material projects to invest itself in, whether that's, for example, uh, supporting the Senate bill, a Senate bid by um, the former Kansas Secretary of State, Chris Kobach, right? Uh, virulent, like, you know, fanatic anti-immigration dude who was one of the loudest supporters of a Muslim registry in the country to mm. track Muslim-majority immigrants or mi- migrants from Something Muslim. Palantir's technology is perfectly poised right. to create and maintain. And one of the other things that Palantir insisted that it didn't do but like its claims of uh, not supporting or not funding or not empowering family se- separation, we need to take with a grain of salt, right? So Palantir has supported and has invested in Chris Kobach's campaign. You know, Palantir has supported it. Alex Karp has supported it. Uh, there's also the fact that Alex Karp, Peter Thiel, have their own acolytes filling up the ranks of the DOD um, and the bureaucracy surrounding the DOD, right? These are people mm. who are who share the same worldview of a sort of uh, technology nationalism, where there is a country that you need to adhere to because it has a core set of values that will one on the one hand advance your profit incentives, but on the other hand advance the political view that you have of the world, right? And two, any country that violates that, any company that works with a country that violates that is a traitor and needs to be dealt with on traitorous terms. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we're, we're, this is a long episode, even by our standards. And so <laughs> I'm going to drive us home um, by saying that uh, Alex Karp and Peter Till are, are, will be key and consistent characters in the TMK universe. Um, we will be coming back to them again and again, because uh, I think that this, you know, this, these theses nailed to the church door, this manifesto of Palantir's futurism is, is something to watch. It's something to keep an eye on. The emerging um, schisms and factions um, in Silicon Valley, I think, are something that, that will be uh, extremely consequential uh, in terms of what kinds of technologies are created and for what reasons and by whom. Um, and and, and I, I think it will be a crucial part of the development um, of what Silicon Valley means and what it looks like and what the technology sector looks like. And so we're seeing those kind of those, those cracks forming right now. We're seeing these breakaway fra- factions. Um, I, will, I will drive us home um, with uh, a, another quote that really just kind of pulls the connection between um, you know, the, 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 future, the, the futurism of the early 1900s to the futurism of, um, of now with a quote from um, Carl Schmitt, who was a, a, a political theorist and member of the Nazi party um, in Germany and uh, you know, really um, had a lot of, you know, had a lot of ideas around like what sovereignty and democracy meant. And so I will quote from a, 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 a literal uh, Nazi political theorist here where he says, quote, 
every actual democracy rests on the principle that not only are equals equal, but unequals will not be treated equally. Democracy requires, therefore, first, homogen homogeny, um, and second, if the need arises, elimination or eradication of heterogeneity. That's the strength and survival of democracy that CARP, Palantir, and all of their buddies uh, in, in the military intelligence mm -hmm. um, com you know, complex are, that's the kind of democracy that they are talking about. That's their mission. And it's one that we have to watch extremely closely um, as these schisms and factions emerge um, and, and what comes from them. So on that uplifting note, <laughs> this has been, t this has been uh, your TMK this week. And uh, we'll catch you all next week. Later. See you all then.